be seated. Well, as a child, I always felt like I was a little bit of an outlier. I used to joke that I was born wearing a tweed jacket. Uh, as a young man, I remember sitting down with my parents, and one of my favorite times of day was watching the 7 o'clock news. I mean, how many kids like to sit down and watch this? I mean, nobody even does that anymore, I don't think. But anyway, who wants to sit down and watch the 7 o'clock news? But I did. I loved it. But I will never forget tuning in one evening at the age of 12, November 9th, 1989, and watching live coverage as the day before the chairman of the Communist Party in East Germany had declared that on midnight of the 9th, people from East Germany who had been held literally at gunpoint for their lifetime almost from being able to go into West Germany and the West beyond would be free to do so that night. I remember watching the coverage as people celebrated in the streets and came out with, with hammers and with chisels and with pickaxes and chipped away pieces of that wall, taking them off. First of all, to hold on to one, you know, as sort of a piece of history, but also to celebrate, to climb up on that thing and look for the first time into the West. It was an electrifying time to watch the evening news, believe it or not. I remember tuning in to live coverage. There's something about watching events unfold as they are happening, isn't there? In this day and age of on-demand entertainment, there is still something about even simple things like tuning into uh, a, an arts performance or, or even a sporting event as it's happening. There's something that is exciting this morning we read from one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Revelation chapter 7. But even as we read it, it strikes me that, though it may be one of my favorites, like the entirety of the book that it is drawn from, St. John's Revelation, it is often mis misunderstood and perhaps even one of the most misinterpreted Books of the Bible, certainly, but even passages. So this morning, I want to walk through this vision of St. John's in Revelation chapter 7, this live stream broadcast, if you will, that John is privileged to view, and I want to break it down a bit to advance our understanding. This morning, we'll consider what it was that St. John saw and heard, if you are following along on your little sermon guide, this is your first sub-point under number two. Just keep you on track. Anyway, what it was that St. John saw and heard, who it is that John is seeing, and why in the world they're there. So sort of what, who, and why of this vision. What St. John saw and heard. We read in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now note first the features of this crowd. It is a great multitude beyond numbering. And they are drawn from every corner of the earth. Not just every region, not just every nation. But every people group, every distinct language group represented upon the earth. 1997, I had the uh, immense privilege of traveling to Papua New Guinea for the summer on on a missions trip. Do you know what Papua New Guinea's claim to fame is? In a nation that is just a little bit larger than the state of California, spread across several islands, they have no less than 832 distinct living languages. 832 languages used today in one nation about the size of the state of California. That is a lot of different language groups. So imagine this crowd that John sees. Because in it there are Americans. In it there are Lebanese. In it there are all of the different ethnicities of Asia Minor and Asia Major. In it there are the 832 different linguistic groups of Papua New Guinea. And all other linguistic groups in this world of ours. That is mind-blowing when you think about it. The evangelical movement in the 19th and 20th centuries looked to this and other passages from the scriptures from Revelation as as an impetus, as a, a motivation to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, expand into places where the gospel had not yet ever been, all around the globe. The reasoning follows, if Jesus said that this gospel of mine will be preached to every tongue, tribe, and nation, and then the end will come. If St. John sees this image of a multitude numbering from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, then we as the church of Jesus Christ ought to get on the mission of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to all those places because it hasn't gotten there yet. And that is actually still true today. It hasn't gotten there yet. And that, friends, is how a little Anglican church in Fort Collins, Colorado, was planted out of the church of Rwanda of all things. Because in the 20th century, 19th century, people from England took the gospel to Rwanda and other places. And then Rwanda said, hey, we ought to take it back because they seem to have forgotten it. When we talk about pressing into our strengths and praying into our challenges as a church, our connection to the global south remains one of those strengths. And our active involvement through prayer, through giving and sending and going to global mission should be one of the chief concerns, one of the chief challenges that we pray into. Global mission is and always shall be one of the primary concerns of the church of Jesus Christ. This is why it's always been and will always be a part of our parish budget to contribute and support the mission of Jesus in other parts of the world. 
This is why a prayer for mission has been a part of the daily prayer of the Anglican Church since the 16th century. This is why we should all daily remember the church's efforts to carry the gospel to other parts of the world in our prayers. But returning to what St. John saw, the point is that this is a multitude that represents all of humanity. It's a multitude that represents all of humanity. And what is more, they're clothed in white robes, and we'll get to that in a moment, and they're holding palm branches. Now, this is not because this is a, a, a snapshot of a heavenly Palm Sunday service. Okay? The palm branch, as some of you have heard me mention in Palm Sunday's past, was an ancient symbol of victory. The, the way the leaves are sort of shaped like ancient swords. It was a symbol of military victory, of conquering, of overcoming But here are these victorious ones lauding the Lamb of God who has purchased their salvation with this sign of victory in their hands. This is essentially a vision of a heavenly church service, if you will, proclaiming the Lord's death and victory and resurrection until he comes again, celebrating with thanksgiving that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. This is why in our own Eucharistic celebration, the clergy traditionally wear white robes as a reminder of being a part of this bigger picture of worship. This is why I declare each week in the Eucharistic prayer that we are joining our voices with angels and with archangels and with this very host of all the company of heaven who forever sing the seraphic hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord. God of power and might. Because this is exactly what happens each and every week. We get to join in this heavenly chorus. It's like heaven is live streaming in real time. And every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we tune in and watch and participate. We get to tune in and sing along giving us a foretaste of what glory lies ahead for us as well. Well, St. John is taking this scene in, a question presents itself. Who is this multitude? Who are these people? And the question is actually presented to John by an angel. We read in verse 13, Then one of the elders, rather, addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Very wisely, John says to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now back up and again, pay attention to the details here because lest we think that this is some vision of some future event that is going to yet take place just because it's in this book of Revelation. The heavenly messenger clarifies for St. John precisely what it is that he's seeing. Namely, he is seeing a picture of what theologians have long called the church triumphant. Here's the remarkable reality. This is not a picture of future glory. This is a peek into what is going on right now at the very moment. This is why I keep making much of this idea of, of live streaming, live broadcast, 
This is John getting to catch the live stream feed from heaven. What St. John is seeing is intended as an encouragement to the early church and to us, the church today. Remember, St. John is seeing all this while he is living in exile on a desolate, barren prison island just off the coast of Turkey. And he's writing to the various churches across Asia Minor who have suffered greatly at this point for the sake of the name of Jesus and for the faith that they have embraced. They're suffering immense persecution under the Roman Empire. And so here, St. John is privileged to pass on this vision of hope to a church that is struggling to maintain the faith, struggling to maintain hope in the face of tremendous persecution. So imagine, imagine that you are a member of the first Christian church of Pergamum, and you've seen elders from your community dragged out of their homes and thrown into prison. You've seen people from your community, perhaps even loved ones, perhaps even family members, taken from that prison and thrown into the Colosseum to be made a spectacle for the, the vulgars of society, frankly. Imagine that you are living in fear that you might be next, at least living with the grief of seeing these people treated in such a way and being parted from you. So now imagine hearing these words. These are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those elders, those friends, those loved ones, they have come through their great trial. Consider what a tremendous hope, what a tremendous encouragement that vision is. Unfortunately, in the 19th century, would-be theologians got hold of this language of tribulation and they began to conceive of it as uh, some sort of uh, end times event that is yet to come, the great tribulation. And you get, you know, the, you get your pre-trib folks who think, oh, the church is going to be whisked away before that happens. Or then you get the post-trib, oh, oh people are going to have to endure it. And this, you know, this is their proof text. You know, people, the church is going to have to endure it, but then it'll be okay in the end, Right? Frankly, all of that complicates the vision far beyond what it originally was meant to communicate. The tribulation that these souls have passed through is not some future end times event yet to come. It was the struggle that these men and women lived day by day to maintain the faith in the face of the persecution of the Roman Empire. Living lives of faith in the face of opposition. That is their great tribulation. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, and frankly by God's grace alone, we do not live in a time or in a place where we are faced by the kind of struggle for the faith that our forebears in the faith have, or even the kind of struggle that many of our brothers and sisters around the globe today still are facing for the sake of the name of Jesus. But even in the relative safety and security and prosperity of contemporary American life, walking out our faith is still a struggle. 
There are societal pressures. There's all that sort of subconscious programming that work against us, subtly training us to walk according to society and not according to the kingdom. There is a spiritual enemy of your souls who wants nothing more than to derail you from the life of faith, the walk of faith, following in the way of Jesus. And sometimes he throws some pretty significant opposition your way and mine. Make no mistake, to truly follow the way of Jesus, even in 21st century America, is still a struggle. So be encouraged by this vision as well. Those who come through the struggle all get to join this crowd. Those who come through the struggle get to join this crowd. Now, without getting overly theological, I do also want us to appreciate the advancement of our understanding of what happens after death that this vision represents. See, in the Old Testament, the place of the dead was understood as Sheol. And it was not necessarily understood to be a place of punishment or reward. Sheol just sort of is. It's just the resting place of the dead. Then during the time of the prophets, and especially the time between the Old and New Testaments, the idea of Gehenna came to the forefront. Now, I've been to Gehenna. I can literally say I have been to Gehenna and back. Because Gehenna is actually the name of a valley outside the city of Jerusalem where all of the refuse from that ancient city was tossed and burned. And so in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the unrighteous being cast out into the Gehenna where the worm never dies and the flames never go out, that's the image that he and his contemporaries had, sort of a a cosmic Gehenna. Sort of the cosmic cesspool where the unrighteous are turned out. Got going there. Lost my place. So take that then into the New Testament and elsewhere in Revelation. In addition, St. John's also showing you know, the, the image of the, the lake of fire that's prepared for the, the devil and all of his angels as a place of punishment for them in leading souls away. Mind you, the late medieval idea of these devils with pitchforks being there to, you know, kind of be poking at the people who are there to be tormented, that comes from Dante, okay? That does not come actually from the scriptures. But the idea of a place of of unquenchable fire and, and torment where the souls of the unrighteous are turned out to is a biblical idea. But the Jewish understanding had been that when one dies, one soul simply goes to rest in Sheol until the Lord comes in judgment. And then there's a sorting. And in the ancient Israelite ideal, it was just a sorting between Sheol, this sort of rather neutral place, and Gehenna, right? But here St. John sees one more refinement of our understanding. While Sheol may be the place for many souls who are awaiting judgment, for the faithful, for those that have been baptized in the blood of the Lamb, who have been buried with Christ in baptism, and who rise again, thus the image of the white robes I promised we would get to, 
For the dead in Christ, they are not just biding their time in Sheol. They get to enjoy the fullness of God's presence now in heaven. God's cosmic throne room. Awaiting the resurrection of all. Again, remember, John is seeing this essentially in real time. This vision comes before John is shown the judgment before the throne of Revelation chapter 20. This is before John is shown the merging of heaven and earth in a newly recreated, perfected, behold, I make all things new, new creation. This is before that. And so awaiting that, the souls of the faithful stand in the presence of God. And so that leads to our last question, answered by this last section. Why are these here then? Why are these folks here? See in verse 15. Therefore, this is the elder going on in his explanation to John. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The faithful in Christ are privileged. They are not simply resigned to Sheol to await judgment because of God's immense love for them, because of God's immense love for you. Jesus said in St. John's Gospel, the Son loves the Father and the Father the Son, and that He came and loved His own to the end, and He invites His people to abide in His love. That abiding in the love of Christ, the love of the Father, it begins here, now, in this lifetime for all those who are adopted as sons and daughters through baptism in Christ's name. And it extends into eternity, beginning at the very moment that this earthly life passes away. God essentially says, don't pass go, don't collect $200, come straight to my presence. And enjoy it for eternity. Await the resurrection, but do so enjoying the fullness, the beauty, the glory of my presence. Again, imagine what a comfort. Imagine what a comfort this vision would have been to John's original audience. Churches who have watched friends and loved ones suffering and being slaughtered for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus now protected, sheltered in his very presence. No more hungering, no more thirsting, no more tears. Experiencing the fullness, the source of those springs of living water that Jesus once promised. Such is the destiny of all those who are baptized in Christ Jesus. Friends, this then is what it means for us. Because of his immense love, because of his gracious provision, we can trust God. We can trust him even with death. 
We don't need to weep as those who have no hope when death parts us from our loved ones. That's not to say that we won't grieve our loss. That's natural. It's good. But even in that grief, we can trust in God's immense love to shelter and care for our loved ones. We can trust that we are one church on both sides, standing on two sides of the gate of death. And like that historic event in 1989, we have seen the beginning of the toppling of that barrier. It has been pulled apart by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Likewise, we can trust in his love that we need not fear death when it comes for us. Truly, to live is Christ, but to die is in fact gain, as St. Paul will say, because we have been given this gracious glimpse into what that future will hold for us. Friends, this is the point of what St. John was saying. It's the same principle, the same point that St. Paul makes in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing. This is why we can pray with joy the words of our psalm this morning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Nothing can take us out of the presence. Not even death itself. That is the point God wanted to establish in sharing this vision with his servant John. So live in that love now. And trust in the hope of that inseparable love, even into eternity. Let's pray. Gracious.